Hey, you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble falling asleep? Well, welcome. I do believe you're in the right place. I hope so. Because Sleep With Me is proud to present Game of Drones, the Game of Thrones podcast that puts you to sleep. We do it with an episode discussion. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights, and press play. We're going to do the rest. And by the rest, I mean the podcast and our discussion of the episode. It's going to create a safe place where you can set aside whatever buzz is going on with your head, whatever talking, thinking, figuring, conniving, conviving, reviving, even revitalizing. Whatever's going on in your head, the chatter, the insistent chatter, whatever it is, we're going to distract you from that. So we're going to create a safe place where you can put that aside. You can symbolically kick it out of your bed, you know, as meanly as you can. Wrap it up and kick it out and just leave it. You know, your brain, your brain will cover. It'll be there in the morning to start right back up telling you what to do. But for right now, all you need to do is listen to my voice. And I'm going to talk about Game of Thrones, Season 1, Episode 10, Fire and Blood. I'm going to talk about some stuff to go over the episode. And it's going to go on and on. And it'll distract you just enough so you can stop thinking. You're not going to learn anything that's going to be life-changing. You're not going to miss out on any... Um, you know, if you, you should have watched the episode of Game of Thrones. That's the exciting part. This is like the discussion... Of the things I found intriguing or cu- I'm curious about. So you can just, it, this I'm like the friend you've always wanted to not listen to I'm, and, and, and who doesn't care, who encourages that. I say, buddy, I'm going to sit, this is a podcast in a nutshell. I'm a t- I mean, I, and I, the previous thing, but I'm also going to use a metaphor is that uh, I'm just going to pull up a chair. I'm going to sit at the side of your bed in a non-uncomfortable way, like. That won't be weird. I'm your friend. I'm going to tell you about. Say, Barry. My name's Barry for some reason. I don't know why. But say, Barry, man, I had the roughest day at work. I'm worried about all this stuff. I'm mad at this guy and this this other person. And I don't know if blank, blank loves me anymore. And I can't sleep, man. It's just all getting to me. I say, hey, listen, uh, Josie. And, yeah, that could be a, a male's name maybe. Uh, I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you about this Game of Thrones episode, man. I'm just gonna tell you all about it, and I just really need you to listen. You know that part. Uh, you know, you just lie there and listen to me, man. And believe me, I'm. You know, I'm your most boring friend, so it'll probably be pretty. You know, uninteresting. You know, go ahead and fall asleep if you need to. I don't. I don't mind. I'll just talk. I'm just. You know, I'll just talk. You got the paint here. There's a couple insects in your place that are listening. Your dog, oh no, your dog's asleep already, but um, I'm sure, you know, so I, I just, I like hearing the sound of my own voice and that's it. And then you'll fall asleep, hopefully, and tomorrow you'll wake up refreshed or rested or just, you know, less tired than normal. That's a, I mean, for those of us that have trouble sleeping, less tired than, than yesterday is a good thing. It's progress. And who knows, you might need to be a little bit more on alert tomorrow. Or just, you know, be able to give a little bit extra. Maybe you're going to help somebody in some, some small, tiny way. And it's going to feel good. 
And, uh, you know, maybe you can build on that, too. I don't know. I can't live your life. You got to do it, unfortunately. I mean, you don't No, unfortunately, actually, you don't want me living your life. But so that's a podcast. We're on the web at com. Game of Thrones episodes are at Drones episodes are at game at www.sleepingpodcast.com. Stress drones. If you need to get a hold of me, it's feedback at sleepingpodcast.com. On the web, it's at Dearest Scooter. We're on Facebook. You can post on the website. You got anything to share? You want to say hi? You want to say hold? You want to say hold? Or that episode was whack. I don't know if hold. You know, you want to do something funny or not funny? Might say, "Geez, buddy." Uh, you, I thought you were going to shorten the uh, intros, and they're getting longer. And I'll say, hey, uh, uh, last week, I for, sorry, I forgot to put the uh, minutes in the intro of where you could cut ahead, so I'll do that this week. Hopefully, I'll remember it. Um, so that's a, that's a podcast in a giant nutshell that took about 18 minutes. No, eight minutes. Um, main point is I'm glad you're here. I hope this podcast helps. Or if it doesn't help, I hope it you know gives you of some modicum of relief from your thoughts just for a little while and rests and relaxes you, makes you laugh or makes you think about something that you never thought about. Or um, you can just use it as background noise. Who knows? I don't know if a woman's heartbeat and my voice are even on the same wavelength for like a child. No, you probably don't want to play this for any babies. I'd probably mess up their brains. Uh, but that's it. Uh, maybe you could, nah, never bad idea. Forget I said that whole thing about the playing it for, just for adults. But that's it. I'm here to help you fall asleep. I hope I do. And I'm glad you're listening. Thanks for listening. All right. Let's move on to the next thing. Uh, hey guys, it's me. I'm on the, uh, gratitude train. Uh, it's chugging into the station of thankfulness. And I just want to alert you, uh, gods to the, passengers on this train, all the wonderful passengers, but I wanted to point out a couple particular passengers like Christy Poster, Posterson, who does our music, his grace, Scott, and her lady, Jennifer, who are responsible for our artwork, the lord and lady of the podcast, who now we know, thanks to Facebook, Twitter, and you gods, that they made it back from the Poconos. And they smiled there, and it seemed it went well. Uh, well. I want to thank you, gods, for, uh, for making me some thunder going. It must be some one of you guys playing around out there. But I want to thank you, gods, too, for... Uh, I, I was thinking of Mike Nichols. And then I was thinking of our buddy Jennifer Eccles. And I was like, is it Nichols or Nichols? So I want to uh, rethink. God's Jennifer Eccles or Eccles was is not right. Eccles or Eccles, Nichols or Nichols. Eccles or Eccles. Uh, Jennifer Eccles, who is our uh, author, and I want to encourage you, God's uh, Barky. You know what? You're the one I leave stuff for. I don't know if you use it, but I'm going to order some of her books, and I'm going to read them. And Barky, if I put it in your tree, I expect you to read the, read the friggin' books. And pass them around the forest or whatever. I want to also thank God some new new listeners we've heard from. It's you know some some listeners we haven't heard from a while like BK on Twitter. She said she's a starfish sleeper. Gods, so watch over her that uh, 
you know, no crustaceans or whatever. Halloween said hi. Marie D. Uh, Gods, watch out for Diablo, other than his screen name. He said the podcast doesn't help him because it's he, he he laughs too much. So help him find something boring. Sam T. sent us a picture of Ray, our buddy. Thank you. Ariel and her new mom's group. I want to say hi to all of you who have brought, um, you know, since the crone is past that age of childbirth, and we don't pray to the mother here on the podcast. You are goddesses on earth. Ariel and all the new mothers of your new mom's group and the mothers of the world. Because we don't we we weren't human mothers and not mothers in heaven that are nothing birthing nothing but nonsense that we don't praise. We just praise the crone. You know, you know I, I I like the maiden, but I don't you know, praise her, believe me. Paula P, thank you for your email. And Tom uh, got an email from Tom. Just, just, it just came in. I want to thank you, Gads. Again, I try to explain iTunes, but iTunes reviews make us more um, al- algorithmic as I sing sometimes, Gads. But I want to thank our newest iTunes reviews, Nyack, Bree. I'm not sure if you're from Nyack, but uh, it says she loves us to sleep and we're a paradox. Thank you, Bree. Only complaint is that she doesn't hear the end of the podcasts. Three buoys. I like the way that sounds. That's another one that rolls off the tongue. Buoy. Three buoys. Says we're so nice to fall asleep. Jens, with a lot of N's and Z's, says we're so helpful. Thank you, Jens. Plain and simple, it works. F up the sides. F up the sides? F up the sides, motherfucker. Said we're plain and simple and it works. Thank you for effing up the sides, my friend. I like it. Thank you for effing up the sides. You know, we don't need sides on this podcast. We're on one side. <laughs> and finally, Pinky Wee says we're sleepy gods. And uh, that, um, I'm dull and good in bed. Maiden, just watch, you know, check that. I'm dull and good. Uh, or maybe I'm only good because I'm dull. Whatever. Gods, thank you for all this. Grad to Express dropping off some passengers of thanks. All right, we'll talk to you soon. All right, so tonight we're talking Fire and Blood, Season 1, Episode, I think it's Episode 10. There's 10 episodes in a season, I think. Again, numbers aren't my specialty, but this was a a doozy. I tried to remember at the end of the episode, I was trying to remember how I felt the first time I saw the episode. And I do remember being pretty um, stunned. With the with the way and be like, I don't think I've seen anything on TV like this before. I mean, there's a couple things that are on the same level or that are pushing the envelope of storytelling on TV. In you know that have done that, but oh, I don't know something this rich. Let's just talk about the episode. How about that? So starts out fire and blood. One thing I noticed on the opening. Da, 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 is that uh that it looks like the uh there's a stag and a lion is bowing to it on that piece of metal that's spinning around at the end, which you guys probably already aware of, but I noticed that. And then we get a picture of a long sword. Bloody sword, I'm gonna be honest with you. It's drip drip dripping. And then um we see that dude's gloves, Yorin, I believe. He's got Arya. 
Sansa faints. I don't know if anybody went to check on her. These Lannister people. You got a young woman, a young girl fainting. And uh, she really, like, it happened in the background, but it was impressive. I, I wish I knew even how to make a GIF. I would do it, but I don't. So if somebody's a GIF, if you're, you're dropping GIFs all over the Internet, don't you, I don't, well, maybe that's copyright violation, but who knows? Might be uh, like sampling a song. I don't know. But Sansa, uh, probably, probably Google it. And then Yorin uh, says to Arya, North boy, we're going north at some point, I think. Then we got Bran dreaming, this repetitive dream he has about the three-eyed raven, which makes me want to sing. Three-eyed raven, oh so raven. Three-eyed raven, raven, raven. That's that green-eyed lady, for those of you that actually have working ears. See Bran's cold breath. Talk about father being down there. Bran then Rickon pops out of nowhere with his wolf. There's beautiful snow, beautiful scenery. And then, you know, Rickon's like, I'm down here to see Dad. And then you got that old guy. He's like, uh, first you have the woman, um, her name, the, the captive woman. And then you got the old guy. And then we go cut to Rob's camp. You got catwalking. Everybody's kneeling to her. My lady, my lady, my lady. You get to, She goes into the woods. You can tell she's upset. Got a sight of some trees. Again, we'll talk about trees upcoming, but I was like, what are those birch or aspen trees? I don't know. That was a question I asked. And then you got Rob doing his best imitation of Don Quixote, chopping at this tree, crying, messing his sword up. He's in his full armor. And then also another thing, this I could not find, but if if you're... um. If you're some sort of botanist or some sort of, uh, you run an arboretum. I always like to get arboretum in here. I love the word arboretum. And I love the concept of arboretums. I don't know about, you know, the delivery of arboretums versus a botanical garden. But, you know, let's not, let's not, you know, let's not get in our uh, friggin', let's get, I guess, start a garden war here. Uh, but anyway, um, there's like clumps of, this clumpy, lumpy grass behind Rob, which I also thought was beautiful. I wanted to lie in it. I wanted to touch it. And I was curious about it. I couldn't get an answer. Uh, but anyway, I started that long. Grass grows in heaps. Maybe I should have Googled that. Then she cat's like, you know, we're going to get the girls back. And then we're going to kill them all, all those Lannisters. Maxino, we're in King's Court. We got that minstrel singing a, a song about Robert. I don't know what instrument he was playing. Again, it looks like that instrument. I don't know if this happens in everybody's house as a child um, or just at my house, but that uh, every other year, I was six kids, so someone would get that um, musical instrument. kind of looked like he was playing it. It's not a guitar. It's stringed. It's uh, not square. Um, if, I don't know if it's ringing a bell and you pluck it like some sort of, Hey, we, you know, we, we didn't get your real instrument. We got you this thing. If you had any talent, you could make music out of this, but yeah, it's the most boring gift ever. And as a parent, you'll be annoying with, you know, I don't know. I'll have to look that up and put in show notes, but Joff, 
you know, is mean to that guy, claps. He tells him, I'm going to take your fingers or your tongue. Calls in Sir Ellen to take his tongue, I think. And Sir Ellen's nice enough to, you know, sterilize the instruments. Also notice Hound, the Hound. Uh, Sandor Clegane? What's he got? Mountains, uh, Gregor Clegane. I just call him the Hound. Uh, he had some fancy armor on, so I don't know if he's part of the uh, Kingsguard now. And then, um, and then uh, Joff is talking about Mother Says I. He uses that line more than once. Then he's mean to Sansa. He says, look at him. And he's trying to break her. He kind of does. She says, well, how long shall I look at him, sir? As long as it pleases me. I don't think anything could please Joff. And then he says, uh, my mother said, tells me I should never strike a lady or his lady, or a king, or whatever. And he says, Sir Marin? Sir Marin is a, is a scumbag. And then the hound steps in, because Sansa's looking over the edge. Is she going to push Joff, or is she going to jump? I don't know, but the hound steps in. I'm like, who's he stepping in to protect? I, I'm not clear on that. I mean, Joff, but also, I don't know, something about his face. Then we go back to Rob's camp. There's, like, a debate going on. Proper, proper course is clear. Let's go with Renly. Then Umber makes a speech, Lord, our buddy Lord Umber. He spits. I think his nickname is Great John because he's so humongous. He's another great line. Even their gods are wrong. And it was the dragons we bowed to. And then the music, the beautiful music starts playing. I think I figured that out for the show tonight. And the king of the north, they start chanting, the king of the north, king of the north, king of the north. I have a little riff here. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to it, the analysis of uh, what's going on in Westeros. But uh, then Lady Stark goes and sees Jamie. Jamie's got a lot of good lines, I mean, for a jerk. does The question I ask, is Jamie afraid of death? He's trying to act tough. Caitlin's trying to call him out, but I can't quite understand him. He says, what gods are those? Why is a world so full of injustice? And then he says, there are no men like me, only me. Uh, that's some ego he's got. He says, you should get some sleep. It's going to be a long war, cat. Then we have Cersei with her hair down. Hodor, Hodor. And then it looks to me like she's maybe um, com committing a crime, in our, I mean, in our modern day, with this young boy, uh, very un-Jamie-like, uh, like, but I don't know, who knows what her, th she's got problems, I mean, obviously. Yeah, I mean, you know, and the guy was very dudish, or boy, whatever he was, he, you know, he was very, like, uh, not, not that bright. Then we go to Tywin and his council. They're talking about suing for peace, arguing back and forth, talking about Joff. And then Tywin says, Tywin's got some armor on him too. Believe me, that's some nice stuff. He says, they have my son. And he's everybody out. Somebody says madness and stupidity. And then he's like, uh, what a, I don't like Tywin. But he says, you know, I always thought you were a stunted fool to Tyrion. But he's going to put Tyrion in charge of be the hand of the east. He says, Sir Gregor's going to start the Riverlands on fire. We're going to Harrenhal. You go to King's Landing to rule. 
He says, well, one more thing. Don't bring that prostitute with you, which is strange. Um, but I guess he's this guy, he's not, you know, he's got something else on Taiwan. I don't know. His, his um, values are out of whack for sure. Then we got Khaleesi asleep. Sergio's watching over her. A little bit creepy. A little bit creepy, Sergio. But and she says, "My son, my son, where is he?" And he says, "You know, you lost your son." Then the witch woman comes in. She says, "A child was sca- scaled with wings," and it said something about gray worm. I think she said gray worms inside, uh, which would be interesting if if she did say that uh, because. Grey Worm is a character that comes up later. And then she says, show me what I bought with my son's life. Another line, the Kalasar is gone. Uh, wonderful word, Kalasar. Uh, it just rolls. It doesn't roll off the tongue. It's like a, it puffs right out of your mouth in a good way. It angered the great shepherd, she says. And then the witch says, and then you'll see what life is worth when the rest is gone. And we got Sam and John talking about John's going to run away. Sam says, you can't. Do you know what happens to deserters? You can't leave us. We need you. Then we get Shay and Tyrion. And Tyrion's like, you know, I'm uh, sorry. I'm out of here. I'm going to go be the hand of the king. And you're going to, and she says, oh, I'm just Shay the funny whore. I thought that was another killer, killer writing. And then Tyrion is, is, you know, in this little bit of rebellion. Everyone always has to do what my father says. Then you got John on the run. You got Sam running into a branch. They say, you took the oath, you can't go. They say, you know, they do the old, hear my words. Rise of, uh, you know, the whole uh, Night's Watch thing. I wish I had that memorized. And we got Khaleesi bathing her call. When the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, then you shall return to me, is what I think she says. And also notice the Kal's tattoo, tattoos. Why did I say tattoos? <laughs> Weird uh, inflection there. Kal's tattoos. I said it wrong again, but whatever. Well, I didn't research that. Interesting, though. Then we got the maester. Half naked, uh, whatever the heck his name is, I always forget it because I hate him. And he's like blubbering on and on about kings and everything he does. He's talking to this woman, talking about madness, talking about uh, Rhaegar Targaryen. Then we see the woman he's talking to. It's Roz, our old friend Roz, who just appears when we need her with her red, red hair. And then this guy, you obviously know he's a fool because he's trying to tell Roz that Joff is a capable young man. With a capable military mind. Stern, I sense greatness. Really, a freaking jackass. And then she was actually listening to him because she said, What was your, you were going to make a point. She said, What was the thing about kings? You were about to get to a point. It's like, then I was like, This guy could have a podcast. He could, this guy could shut me down. But he's such a, he, he'd be like, this uh, hello. This is the uh, Lannister fan cast, and I just want to talk about my favorite Lannisters. And that would get old quick, unless you were like some Lannister toady. Uh, and he says what? And then they have this nice uh, extended scene of him 
can't read my writing, but uh, it was nice of him, him getting dressed and uh, just a, I think there was just a scene of the room and him standing there, which I still I'm like my mind hasn't wrapped around what what was going on there, what what the uh, what the message was. Then we got Bailey. Then we have a. I mean, this scene, this next scene. I don't even want to summarize it. You should watch it. I didn't write down the time, but you got Baelish and Varys, right? Varys, Baelish and Varys. Baelish is staring at the throne, and he says, uh, "When you picture you upset, when you picture yourself up there, how do you look?" And they talk about that. He says, "A man with great ambition and no morals." I wouldn't bet against you. He says, I'm flattered, of course, to be pictured at all. And he says, uh, do, do you, this is another one, it's a little offensive, but uh, do you lie awake at night fearing my gash, he says. And then they both have this moment, I admire you, I admire you. And then Ferris says, so here we stand in mutual admiration playing our role, mutual admiration and respect playing our roles. Then the king rolls in. They're like, my king, my king. So this made me think about, just to start to picture this as we move forward in the next couple seasons of Game of Thrones, is like Baelish, Varys, and the third dude, Maester uh, Jack, Jack a hole. And, uh, you know, how, how do they connect to the overall story? And, you know, how much are they, how much are, I don't know. Let's just pay attention to it, all right? Then we got Yorin and Ari. He says, you're Ari, Ari the orphan. Looks like they're in the garment district, which uh, she had already been in. And uh, he says, come on, you sorry sons of whores, which if he only knew that, uh, you know, he was telling the truth. He says it's a thousand leagues to the wall. I'd have to reference our, uh, I don't, I can't remember how far a league is, but that's pretty far. Roman Mile, maybe? I don't know. Then we have uh, Papa Mormont. I haven't preferred to him that, but he does seem like a Papa Mormont. And John, he says, you know, how about some beer and ham for breakfast? He says, you know, I want you and your wolf, you know, coming with me. We're going to go beyond the wall. We're going to do some stuff. We're going to find your uncle dead or alive. You know, yeah, I think you're pretty badass. You know, now give me that beer and ham. Then we have the call Furnigal funeral pyre. Khaleesi's putting some dragon eggs up there. And then Jorah says, you know, don't ask me to stand aside while I watch you burn. She kisses him on the cheek. And, you know, this is all on the internet anyway, but it is like permanent friend zone. He just fell right into it. And so she makes this, I'm a Daenerys Stormborn. And now we're like, okay, this is freaking, I remember this, being like, there had been so much, we'd lost so much this season already that I was like, are we going to lose Khaleesi or not? You know, what's going to happen? And then she says, I'm the dragon's daughter. Then they light these two rings on fire. And then the next day, you got a buck naked Khaleesi, some dragons. And they say, blood of my blood, and that's it. So it's like, uh, actually, I didn't realize you open it with blood of my, you know, and then she's then I close it with that line. I think it's the last line: "Blood, my blood." And then there's a lot of fire in there too. So that's uh, that's the episode, um, "Fire and Blood." 
what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about cold breath. We're going to talk about making snow for TV and movies. We're going to talk birches and aspens and a rumor. Uh, is it true that I've heard about aspens? Uh, we're going to talk about that minstrel dude and his song. We're going to find out if fire and sterilization. We're going to look into that. At some point, we'll do some vocabulary. We're going to talk about that music real quick about uh, that, that I liked so much. Or maybe I'll just, uh, I don't know if we'll have time for that. We'll see. Otherwise, it'll be in the uh, Spotify playlist, Sleep With Me. We'll talk about someone to watch over me. And then, of course, we're going to look into a list of famous prostitutes in comedy. How could we not? And, of course, we'll have, uh, hopefully, we'll have a visit from Sir Pounce, and we'll do our prayers, and that'll be it. All right, let's let's keep on going. Bran had this cold breath when he was doing the Three-Eyed Raven song. Or maybe it was when he went, once they went into the uh, OSHA, I think it's a woman's name. Uh, they went into the uh, crypts or whatever you call it, the underground uh, area. But uh made me think about, again, something I'm kind of know about. Like I know when it gets to a certain temperature, you can see your breath. And I remember learning about it, but of course I don't remember the details. I'm like, what, you know, is that some, is that my soul? Or is it uh, like a spirit that cats, you know, I remember something about cats sucking the wind out of you. So I figured I'd get some facts about it because I don't want to, you know, is that like a cat spirit breathing back? So anyway, uh, I found this great uh, article on Wonderopolis. Why? Do you see your breath when it's cold? And this is number 471, Wonder of the Day. It's uh, by the National Center for Families Learning. Uh, I don't see an author, but uh, let's read it. Burr, it's freezing this morning in Wonderopolis. Oh, Wonderopolis, so to, that sounds like a great place to live until you get tired of it. We woke up in a thick blanket of frost on the grass. wonder if it's that clumpy grass. Be sure to bundle up as you head out to the bus stop. You don't want to get frostbite. But as you wait for the bus and talk with your friends, well, I don't have any friends, but you may notice that you can see your breath. If you and your friends all exhale at the same time, you can make a big cloud in the air. Did you and your friends suddenly turn into cloud-breathing dragons? Or something else going on here? Why can't you see your breath when it's cold? Why can you see your breath when it's cold outside, but not when it's hot? Believe it or not, there's nothing magical about seeing your breath outside when it's cold. It's just science at work. You may already know that when you breathe in, your body takes in oxygen from the air. When you breathe out, your lungs expel carbon dioxide back into the air. But the breath you breathe out contains more than just carbon dioxide. When you exhale, your breath also contains moisture. Because your mouth and your lungs are moist, each breath you exhale contains a little bit of water in the form of water vapor. For water to stay a gas in the form of water vapor, it needs enough energy to keep its molecules moving. Inside your lungs, where it's nice and warm, this isn't a problem. When you exhale and it's cold outside, though, the water vapor in your breath loses energy quickly. Rather than continuing to move freely the molecules begin to pack themselves closely together. As they do, they slow down and begin to change into either liquid or solid forms of water. 
This scientific process is called condensation. When you exhale, when it's cold outside, the water vapor in your breath condenses into lots of tiny droplets of liquid water and ice that you can see in the air as a cloud, similar to fog. When it's warm out, though the invisible water vapor gas stays invisible, so they used invisible twice, what kind of science foundation this is, but because the warm air provides energy that allows the water vapor to remain a gas, as temperatures drop, it's more likely you'll be able to see your breath. There's no exact temperature at which condensation will occur, even though 461 degrees Fahrenheit is the temperature at which books burn. Many environmental factors other than the temperature can play a role in condensation, including relative humidity. When it falls below 45 degrees, though, you can usually expect to see your breath. So that's it. That's, uh, I guess it's not cat souls, uh, unfortunately. All right. Uh, another thing that was beautiful about this episode, and, and it has occurred in this season, and I think it continues to occur when we're in the north, is the snow falling. I think especially in Brand's dreams, but also adds a dramatic uh, something or other, je ne sais pas, or uh, gravitas, or some word, whatever, you know, sub in the correct word for what I'm getting at. But it's, it's a lovely, I mean, especially the moment when the Meister's walking across, that's Llewellyn, I think, maybe, Llewellyn, something, maybe. And he sees Bran, and Bran already knows. But the, the I'm like, man, how do they achieve this beautiful snowfall? So I looked that up on the Internet. A little bit tough, but I found two articles. One, well, I'll link to them in the show notes. This one doesn't have to do with Game of Neither one has to do with Game of Thrones. But this one's from Gizmodo. And the title of the article is Hollywood Invented a New Type of Fake Snow to Film It's a Wonderful Life. And it's by Andrew Lazuski. And um, I just think it's interesting because it has a link to all these life pictures from Life magazine. So I'm going to put that in the show just for you guys. But it says, uh, it's a short one. It just says, uh, the Frank Capra classic isn't known for its special effects. But since It's a Wonderful Life was shot in the sweltering heat of June and July of 1946, the filmmakers had to develop a new type of artificial snow. Life has a great collection of never-before-seen photos from the film's set, detailing the technical challenges of making Bedford Falls look like a winter wonderland. Before It's a Wonderful Life, fake movie snow was mostly made from cornflakes painted white, and it was so loud when stepped on that any snow-filled scenes with dialogue had to be redubbed afterwards. So working with Russell Sherman, RKO's studio head of special effects, director Frank Capra developed his own type of quiet fake snow, mixing fomite, a material used in fire extinguishers, with sugar, water, and even soap flakes. A sprayable version of artificial snow was created that could be blasted over set pieces. A little disconcerting, though, are reports that asbestos was also used to dress up some of the sets. While the material doesn't make life any less wonderful, at the time they didn't realize it had the potential to make it drastically shorter. And that's uh, for Life magazine. The photos are by Martha Holmes. So check that out. 
And then this is by another, like I found these websites with great, uh, what do we call that, Imaginarium or whatever the hell the last one was. This one's wonderfulengineering.com. And this article is called, This is How They Create Snow in Movies. It's by Uber Geek is the author's name. Let's see if I can find anything else out here. No, that's it. So I'm going to read through this. It's got some good pictures from movies too. If any of you has seen scenes with snow in the movies, chances are that the snow is produced by British company Snow Business, one word. As the world's largest artificial snow producer, Snow Business has produced snow scenes for most of the famous, most famous and well-known movies. Darcy Crownshaw, owner of the firm, has provided artificial snow alternatives to Hollywood for 30 years, and his company can produce 200 different types of snow. The company uses a variety of materials to produce snow, including paper and plastics. Sometimes candle-sized fireworks that produce snowy ash are used to create the effect of snow. Of course, when the situation demands it, real snow is used too, and this can last up to three days if stored correctly. One of the company's machines is capable of producing a square meter of snow in two seconds. The different ways of producing the snow depend on what directors and producers of the movies want. A slow snowfall could be the requirement. Different sizes of flakes could be used. The possibilities are endless. And Crownshaw and his team can make it all happen. Crownshaw says, you name it, we've got it. There are more ways to wake our snow than Eskimos have words for it. The firm has even sold snow to places like Serbia. Even though we come up against real snow, sometimes ours is better. If you lie down in real snow, it is cold and wet. We supply film stars with comfy snow. Sometimes on top of real snow, Cornshaw said. Below are some images. So I thought was that, that was interesting, you know, to learn about how they make snow. So that's that. We had, we had these trees where Rob and where Caitlin goes to talk to Rob when he's attacking the one tree. But in the background, there was these trees. And I was like, I didn't get a great look at them. But it was like, I've had, I had, I had a birch tree at some point in my life. I think maybe, I can't remember which part of my childhood it was, but I loved that birch tree. And I played in it. I climbed in it. And at some point I forgot about it, and I don't even know if it died or, you know, trees get less respect than pets for some reason. So probably birch tree will be getting revenge on me in the next life. But I apologize for that publicly, birch tree. But then I was like, was that one of those birch trees or aspen? Uh, yeah, aspen trees. And let's look up from over here on gardenguides.com, difference between a birch tree and an aspen tree. And this is by Elizabeth Tumbarello, and she's from Ohio. Overview. Birch trees of the genus Betula are quite different than aspen trees of the genus Populus. Both trees have the capability of growing to around the same height and share bright fall foliage. The cover, color of the autumn tr leaves, and the general height of these trees is where the similarities end. So she's calling me a dummy, in inadvertently, as there are many differences between birch trees and aspen trees. But someone asked this question, so I'm not the first person. Bark appearance. Birch tree bark is more is marked with horizontal horizontal lenticels 
or cellular clumps that act as pores on the tree. The color of the bark may be gray, grayish-white, grayish-red, or grayish-black. Because of the markings of the lenticels, the papery bark of the birch tree easily flakes and peels off the trunks of the trees. The bark of aspen trees is smooth and white and marked only occasionally by stark black knots or scarring. Leaf appearance. Regardless of the species of birch, the leaves appear the same. Birch leaves are alternate in their arrangement on the twig. They are doubly serrate, meaning the edges of the leaves resemble the blade of a saw with larger saw teeth interspersed among smaller ones. Birch leaves have a fine network of veins running through them, stemming from a central single vein. Birch leaves have leaf stems called petioles with a rounded stipule or bump where the leaf attaches to the twig. Aspen leaves are almost perfectly round. While not serrated, the leaf margins of aspen trees are marked by rounded teeth resembling tiny bumps among the edge. The petioles of aspen leaves are flat and alternately arranged around the twig. Buds. Before leaves even appear, they begin as buds on the end of branches. During the winter, scars where these buds existed in previous years can give a clue to the identification of a tree without any leaves present. Birch tree buds form in the early spring and are fully grown by the beginning to the middle of the summer. Buds are arranged laterally on the tree, and the branches do not have terminal buds. The buds are red, reddish-purple in color, and are shaped like cones. Aspen buds are reddish-brown in color. Aspen tree buds are conical, like those of a birch tree, differing in that aspen trees form terminal buds. Aspen buds usually form later in the season than birch buds, requiring less time to mature. The bud scars are more prominent against the white bark of the tree. Climate and Location Aspen trees are restricted to USDA cold hardiness zones 1 through 6, with trees in warmer and considerably cooler climates becoming dwarfed. Birch trees generally grow best in USDA cold hardiness zones 6 through 3, but can tolerate cold, warmer and colder climates with only a little difficulty. Aspen trees are found across the North American continent, from Canada down to Mexico, while birch trees are generally only found in the eastern United States and parts of Canada. Growth requirements. Birch trees thrive in partial sunlight, while aspen trees require full sun. Birch trees require loosely packed soil to accommodate their shallow root systems, while aspen trees tolerate a variety of soil conditions. Now, another thing about this is, is that uh, at some point someone, and I don't know if this was in a movie or a book, I feel like it was in a book, but I'm not positive, said that uh, the aspen tree is the largest living organism on Earth because it shares a root system, and the trees are only like, uh, sorry about that, like a, I heard a knock at my door, but there's no one there. Uh, it's Halloween tomorrow too, so but I don't think so. The, the birch, the aspen trees were this one large organism, and all the trees themselves were just one. So I was like, "Is this BS?" And I've lived my whole life up until today, wondering if that was true or not, and kind of being like, you know, that'd be embarrassing to learn and lose on Jeopardy because of that, or to spout it off. You know, looking when I'm like, "Hey, maiden." Um, 
Yeah, where like some maiden look like. Like, oh yeah, wow. I like those, uh, uh, whatever those legs. I didn't say legs. I was talking. You know, hey, do you ever uh, you know anything about aspen trees? The largest organism on the earth, believe it or not. So that'd be embarrassing if she was like, oh, actually, I'm a botanist and you're a fool. I'd be like, okay, you got me. But uh, so I looked it up. Okay, this is what comes up on Wikipedia. Pando tree. Pando, also known as the Trembling Giant, is a clonal colony of a single male quaking aspen, populus tremulodes, determined to be a single living organism by identical genetic markers and assumed to have one massive underground root system. Plant is estimated to weigh collectively 6 million kilograms. Six million, right? Making it the heaviest known organism. The root system of Pando at an estimated 80,000 years old is is among the oldest known living organisms. Pando is located one mile southwest of Fish Lake on Utah's Route 25 in the Fremont River Ranger District of the Fish Lake National Forest. History. Pando is thought to have grown for much of its life under ideal circumstances. Frequent forest fires have prevented its main competitor, conifers, from colonizing the area. And a climate shift from wet wet to humid to semi-arid has obstructed seedling establishment and the accompanying rivalry from younger aspens. This damn younger aspens thinks they're so hot. During intense fires, the organism survived underground with the Druid system sending up new stems in the aftermath of each wildfire. If its postulated age is correct, the climate into which Pando was born was markedly different than that of today, and it may be as many as 10,000 years since Pando's last successful flowering. The clone that became Pando was discovered by Burton V. Barnes at the University of Michigan in 1968, and Barnes researched it through the 70s. Barnes was widely considered an expert on the North American aspen at the time, having been one of the first to describe the clonal growth of aspens from an extensive root system as part of his dissertation at Michigan in the late 1950s. Barnes has described Pando as a single organism based on its morphological characteristics alone. Molecular techniques and methodology developed since that time have largely substantiated those conclusions. Building on Barnes's earlier work, Michael Grant of the University of Colorado at Boulder re-examined the clone, named it Pando, and claimed it to be the world's most massive massive organism in 1992. In 2006, the Postal Service published a stamp in commemoration of the Aspen, calling it one of the 40 wonders of America. So it's pretty badass. Um, and there'll be more in the show notes, but how about that? Like, uh, what I thought wasn't true is, on some level, it's the most heaviest living organism. Also wicked old. I mean... And it just tells you, like, the wonders of life. Like, whoever's sang that song, Elton John or Phil Collins, Circle of Life, I guess it was a song. Wonders of Life was the wonders of life. Whatever. 
It, I mean, really, is a miracle. I mean, wow. 8,000, 10,000 years old, surviving forest fires, massive under... Man, I'd like to see those. I'll, hopefully one day I will stand in that grove, grove, you know, grove of aspens, pando, and I'll kiss me a pando tree. Then I'll write a song about it. <laughs> kiss me a pando tree. I, don't, I wish I had a song on the ready. I kissed a kissing a pando tree. The circle of kissing pan. I don't know. Let's go on to something else. The boar's great tusks, they boded ill for good King Robert's health. And the beast was every bit as fat as Robert was himself. But a brave king cried, do your worst, I'll have your ugly head. You're nowhere near as murderous as the lion in me bed. King Robert lost his battle, and he failed his final test. The lion ripped his balls off, and the boar it did the rest. Those are the words of Marillion, uh, sung by, as if, if I could, you know, could be my audition for someday playing a, um, I mean, I guess Merlin would be able to do better with only what's left of his tongue. But I want to look up about this guy. I want to look up the words of the song because I didn't get it all. But Merlin, he's a recurring character in the first season played by the guest star. E-M-U-N. Eamon Elliot. Debusing Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. He's a singer. He's a singer in the Seven Kingdoms. And he has his uh, tongue cut out by Sir Alan Payne for writing and performing a limerick about Joffrey's parents. I'd have to look up what limerick is because uh, I always thought it was, you know, there once was a man from Nantucket. Do 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 that seems like uh, less lines than that. There once was a man from Nantucket who did do the buff sucking. That's two sets of lines. He went to the store, you know, and he met Roz the Mo, who said should take it home and shuck it. <laughs> oh, man. I thought we were talking about Marillion, whose background is he's a troubadour and a singer. Or a singer wandering the seven kingdoms, selling his skills for, in return for bed, board, and coin. B o a r d, not b o e. However you spell board, like boring. He's uh, entertaining the patrons at the Crossroad Inn when Caitlin Stark and Sir Roderick Cassell or Castle arrive. You know, he goes to their table. They kick him out, and Tyrion shows up. He goes along for the ride. Doesn't work uh, out so hot for Marillion. But he's witty, obviously. Uh, but again, uh, wit does not get you very far. Uh, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I mean, mine's more, you know. But we'll see, uh, like a, a a more a less uh, a less edged wit. How far? A duller wit. Will that get us any farther? I don't know. So that's Marillion. A little touch, just a little taste of Marillion. I had a taste of Marillion. 
I paid a coin of a billion. It tasted like crap. Something I don't know what rhymes with crap. Pap. Map. Sap. I felt like a sap. And now, all I can do. And now, it's time for my cotillion. For billion, cotillion, trillion, marillion, fillion. I don't know. Nathan Fillion? We could probably fit this. So, that's uh, that's it. Right, let's move on. <laughs> Something you know, we can't. I can't hit them all. Can't. You know, bore bore many rain, rainbow of boredom here. Some is like extra flop bore bore flop flop boredom. And speaking of our buddy Marillion, um, yeah, our but his buddy or not his buddy, but uh, our friend from the last episode, Cerillion. Bum 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 bum. Uh, he uh. I thought it was an interesting touch that he decided to sterilize his uh, tools before removing Marillion's tongue. But at the same time, if he, like, maybe this guy seems like he's old. He's been around the block. He's had his tongue removed. Maybe it's like empathy. He's like, I don't want, you know, I had a tongue infection. I don't want this poor guy to get a tongue infection. Maybe it's self-preservation because he knows Joff is a nut job and wants this guy alive to further abuse. I don't know what it was, but it just stuck out to me that he was put his stuff over the fire to sterilize it. And of course, that got my brain going because every once in a while, I've been like, oh, I need to, you know, to do something with a needle, run a lighter across it, burn my fingers, of course, because, and then I'm like, is this really doing anything? And I always do it the wrong way. So then it's burned needle. Yeah, but does that really sterilize? So I try to, and actually this is, I I feel like my research flopped, but because I don't know if I came up with a definitive answer, but let's just talk turkey, okay? Let's let's blame it on somebody else. I went over to Livestrong.com. I don't see an author here. Oh, yeah, I do. It's, uh, this author is uh, Denise Stern, How to Sterilize an Insulin Needle. Many people on insulin for the treatment of diabetes try to save money on supplies as injections. Oh, boy, if again, faint, I might pull a Sansa reusing. But, uh, oh, oh, oh boy. While you can sterilize needles, customers at home should know that doing so does not provide truly antibacterial protection, does not condole the needle and destroy the internal integrity. But, of course, if you're going to do it anyway. Step one, flame is long believed to provide some perfect protection against bacteria, except against bacteria when it comes to sterilizing needles and other tools used in surgery over the centuries. While doing so may may kill some of the bacteria found on the surface of a needle, it may not kill all, depending on your source of heat. However, if you do hold the needle with tweezers, scissors, or other tool over a flame for 15 to 30 seconds approximately, you may kill some bacteria. Flame can be from a stove or cigarette lighter, which will create a blackening of the needle due to chemical reactions from heat. Step two you want to do uh, use alcohol or bleach, use a swab of cotton, drench in alcohol or bleach, wipe the needle through the cotton several times, being careful not to touch the tip of the needle, and thereby destroying the sterile field before using it. Or pour a small amount of alcohol or bleach into a clean sterile glass and then drop the needle into the alcohol and allow it to sit for 15 seconds. You may also use alcohol wipes to sterilize the needle. Take care. Not to touch the pointed end of the needle, 
prior to you, dummy. The dummy was mine, but it's like, okay, okay, thanks. Step three, boiling needles may provide better protection, especially if the water reaches approximately 100 degrees Celsius, 200 degrees Fahrenheit. This method may kill many bacteria, but it's not guaranteed to kill all. Boiling for 30 minutes is recommended. While the CDC has said that boiling for an hour may be permitted in locations or situations where modern sterilization equipment or technology is not available. Now let's talk modern let's talk modern sterilization equipment because it's one of my favorite words to say. Well, I'm probably you guys will have to tell me if I'm saying autoclave or autoclave. Autoclave, I like saying autoclave. Just the Kalasar has an autoclave. I don't know, whoever is like into speech and the construction of words, those are just, oof, I love, you know, put the Kalasar in an autoclave, man. Hey, 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 maiden, maiden. you know, what do you say? I, uh, you know, massage your Kalasar, you know, run my fingers all the way down to that autoclave and, uh, you know, do some sterilization of, uh, the horse lords. Uh, what do you say, baby? <laughs> oh, boy. But what is autoclave? Uh, I got two articles here. I'll probably only read one, but this is from Eurotherm.com. Probably selling something, but it's industrial, so you guys don't got to worry about buying it. Of course, uh, I don't see an author, but it's probably, it's their article, Eurotherm, Eurotherm.com. The sterilization process of autoclaves. Throughout history, humans have used fire to purify items. Heat generated through application of high temperatures acts by disrupting membranes and denaturing proteins and nucleic acids. And then does anyone wonder if they have feel you know if they can feel these things like you worry about the lobsters or the potato whoever else you're boiling slowly burning, however, is a bit excessive for everyday usage. Transmissible agents such as spores. Bacteria and viruses can be eliminated through sterilization. This is different from disinfection. Oh, that's I already learned something. Where only organisms that can cause degree the disease can be removed. Huh. So let's read that again. Transmissible agents, spores, bacteria, virus, can be eliminated through sterilization. Different from disinfection where only disease-causing organisms. I don't really know the difference, but that's... <laughs> Interesting. Uh, some methods used to achieve sterilization are autoclaves, highly effective and inexpensive, unsuitable for heat-sensitive objects, hot air ovens, insufficient compared to autoclaves, ethylene oxide, suitable for heat-sensitive items, but leaves toxic residue on sterilized items, low-pressure, low-temperature steam and formaldehyde, Effective for instruments with cavities or tubular openings. Sporicidal chemicals. Often used as disinfectants, but can also sterilize instruments if used for prolonged periods. Irradiation, gamma rays, no thank you. And accelerated electrons are excellent at sterilization. Gas plasma. The preferred principle for sterilization is through heat, the autoclave being the most widely used method of achieving it. In a dry air oven, it takes two hours at 160 degrees Celsius to kill spores of the bacterium Clostridium 
botulinum. Uh, I think that's botulism. Using saturated steam, the same pores are killed in just five minutes at 121C, proving that moist heat is more effective than dry heat. Yeah, more effective at making me sweat. Autoclave design and control. To be effective against spore-forming bacteria and viruses, autoclaves need to have steam in direct contact with the material being sterilized, i.e., loading of items is very important. Two, bullet point two, create a vacuum in order to displace all the air initially present in the autoclave and replacing it with steam. Point three, implement a well-designed control scheme. Steam. Point three, in- implement a well-designed control scheme for steam evacuation and cooling so the load does not perish. The efficiency of sterilization process depends on two major factors. One of them is thermal death time, i.e. time microbes must be explored, exposed to a particular temperature before they're all dead. New cries for these microbes, I ask you. The second factor is the thermal death point or temperature which all microbes in a sample are killed. The steam and pressure ensure sufficient heat is transferred into the organism to kill them. A series of negative pressure pulses are used to vacuum all of the possible air pockets while steam penetration is maximized by the application of succession of positive pulses. Typical pressure cycles used in autoclaves are 1. Cycles for fabrics, assembled filter units, and discard loads. 2. Cycle for laboratory plastic and glassware. 3. Cycle for mainly for discard loads. Process performance can be confirmed by monitoring color changes on indicator tape, which is often taped on packages or products to be autoclave biological indicators, such as the assets at tests it can also be used. These contain the Bacillus thermostomosa spores, which are the toughest organisms an autoclave will have to destroy. After a run-in with an autoclave, the internal glass and the attested vial is shattered, allowing the spores to, to a differential liquid medium. If the autoclave has destroyed the spores, the medium remains a blue color. Otherwise, the spores will metabolize coloring, causing a yellow color to change. After two days of incubation at 56 degrees Celsius, a control system must therefore provide flexibility in the way in which accurate and repeatable controls of sterilization is achieved and will include the following features. Precise loop control with setpoint profile programming, recipe management system for easy parameterization. That's another good word there, parameterization. I like to parameterize your uh, autoclave. Sequential control for complex control strategies. Secure collection of online data from sterilization systems for analysis and evidence and local operator display with clear graphics and controlled access to parameters. And guess who's selling this? These guys are over at Schneider Electric. They sell the Icon Visual Supervisor and it's an ideal solution for this application. So thank you, Eurotherm, for that. And that is autoclaves, folks. All right, I'm going to talk in autoclaves. All right, let's talk music because the music in Game of Thrones is wonderful. It's part of the beginning, it's part of the end, and it's part of the storytelling. And it's like another one of those things that just enhances things. And that is also part of this new era of television we've been experiencing over the past 
I don't know, seven, maybe 12 years. I don't know, maybe longer. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Deadwood, The Wire, and then, you know, into the next era. The Sopranos, sorry, Sopranos. But whatever, let's, we're not going to, we're talking Game of Thrones music here. Music from the Game of Thrones music, this is from Wikipedia, for the fantasy TV series Game of Thrones, by U.S. cable channel HBO is comprised by Raman Dewandi, Dewandi, Dewadi, Raman, Raymond, Raymond Dewadi, and published by Varis Sarabande. I hope, I, I apologize if I got your, the soundtrack is instrumental and features one major theme, the main title, which accompanies the series title sequence. The music is noted for its popular main theme, which has been covered many times, and for its use of decidedly non-medieval renditions of songs from which the series source novels by noted indie bands. These adaptations, according to Wired, create attention for the series and media that wouldn't normally cover it, but are also notable for their musical merits independent of the series. Season 1, Game of Thrones' soundtrack album for the season, first season was published in 2001. Now, believe me, I'm going to make sure that it's on Spotify if they have it. The soundtrack to Game of Thrones was originally to be composed by Stephen Warbeck, but on the 2nd of February 20, 2011, only 10 weeks prior to the show's premiere, it was reported that Warbeck, Warbeck had left the project and Raman Jawadi, 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 I think, Raymond Jawadi had been commissioned to write the music instead on 10 weeks to give the series its own distinctive musical identity. According to Jawadi, the producers asked him not to use musical elements such as blues or solo vocals that had already been successfully used by other major fantasy productions. He mentioned that a challenge in scoring the season... He mentioned that a challenge in scoring the season... He mentioned that a challenge in scoring the series was its reliance on dialogue and its sprawling cast. On several occasions, already scored music had to be omitted so as not to get in the way of dialogue. Oh, that's interesting. Jawadi said that he was inspired to write the main title music by an early version of the series' computer animated title sequence. The title music is reprised as a global theme in the rest of the soundtrack, initially and frequently, and as part of the theme of individual characters, then in full towards the end of the season one, particularly during important scenes. The album is made was made available for download. Reception. Richard Bruxton of Track Sounds wrote an ambivalent review, calling the album album of valiant effort and Jawandi's most consistently satisfying work to date, but criticized the main themes falling short of expectations raised by, who was this guy, Richard Bruxton? Now, the one song I wanted to note from this episode that just it touched me in some way, I don't know, it stuck out to me. There's a lot of good songs in here. But I got to find King of the North. It's uh, song 26, if you have the CDs. But I'll try to make sure that's in the playlist, and then you can link to the rest of it on, uh, what do we use, Spotify. There's a playlist on Spotify. If you guys use something else, you can either search for it or you can let me know, hey, I don't like Spotify or, you know. But it's called uh, 
26 King of the North. That's a minute 28 fire and blood from that episode. Rob Stark is proclaimed King of the North by the High Lords of the North. Contains a melody of the House Stark theme, Goodbye Brother. This track is incorrectly titled King of the North when the actual title given to Rob Stark is King in the North. Ah, well, King in the North. King of the North or King of the North? King of the North, King of the North. So that's music, and it'll be, I'll, I'll make sure to link to it. Thanks. Uh, uh, hey, so, hey, guys, it's me. Uh, I just got back from a total treat. Uh, even though I wasn't gone, I'm uh, coming right from the last segment, is that uh, I just listened. So I was thinking when the Khaleesi, our Khaleesi, was sleeping, and, uh, yeah, I said our Khaleesi. I've said it before. I'll say it again. And Sir Jorah was there watching over her. And it, you know, anytime somebody's watching over someone sleeping that you're not sleeping with, uh, and I mean, like, you share a bed with them, and you're not their parent, or grand, I guess grandparent, maybe, uh, but he shouldn't be watching people sleep. And I get it, Shajora's guarding her, and I like it, but at the same time. But anyway, it reminded me of the song and the movie, Someone to watch over me. Now, I just listened. I took a break, and I was like, oh, you know, let me refresh my memory of this song because, uh, you know, it's a kind of, uh, someone longing to see, za, 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 zone out to be, someone to watch over me, shubity. That's a scat, uh, scooter version there. My name's Sir my dear, it is so clear. You're the mother of dragons, my dear, and I'll be watching you sleep. Beep, beep, don't go in that pyre. I'm a little bit afraid of fire. My name's Sir Jorah, and my dad hates me. But you'll see I'm someone to watch over thee. Anyway, I mean, it just did a great disservice because there's so many beautiful versions of this song. I mean, starting on Spotify, I'm not, again, this is not advertisement. It's just the most convenient way I listen to music, and I don't even use the pro version. But, uh, like, you got uh, Ella Fitzgerald, Rod Stewart. I didn't listen to Ella Fitzgerald's one. Rod Stewart, I did not listen to it, but I'm sure it's good. Then I listen to Susan Boyle's version. No, Susan Boyle, for a beautiful voice, but she skips the intro part of the song and just goes right into the meat, uh, which, you know, depends on your mood. Linda Ronstadt, I listen to that one. And then a chilling one I finished up with was Amy Winehouse. I probably would listen to Etta James's version next, then maybe Frank Sinatra or Willie Nelson. But it's just a beautiful, beautiful song, and uh, it was also made into a movie. So let's talk. Turkey. Uh, the song is composed by none other than George Gershwin, with the lyrics by Ira Gershwin for the musical OK in 1926, and where it was introduced by Gertrude Lawrence. Gershwin originally approached the song as an up-tempo jazz tune, but then his brother Ira suggested that it might be better as a ballad, and George ultimately agreed. This reminds me of the beautiful movie uh, Saving Mr. Banks. I don't know why. Maybe because brothers working on a song. I guess that was the Sherman Brothers. Uh, it has been performed by numerous artists since its debut. 
and it's a jazz standard. If that's if you haven't seen that movie, by the way, now I'm distracted. Great, 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 great movie. As well as a, a key work in the Great American Songbook. It's also referenced. I guess there's a play someone watch over me. So yeah, this goes out through the recorded versions. Actually, George Gershwin has his own version, and Gertrude Lawrence, George Olson, Lee Wiley. Judy Garland has a version. Uh, Artie Shaw, Frank Sinatra, Art Tatum, Ella Fitzgerald, Chet Baker, Al Haig, Ray Conniff, uh, Joni James, Sarah Vaughn, some and more people I've never heard of, Etta James, Rosemary Clooney, George, your mom's on there, Barbara Streisand, that's one. A lot of us probably first, I think that's a version I've heard first. Johnny Hodges, Oscar Hopkin, oh, Mary Hopkin, Oscar Peterson, Francis Gershwin, Willie Nelson, Helen Merrill, Nick Acosta, Melissa Manchester, Linda Ronstadt, Sting, maybe that's Roberta Flack, Paul, there's a lot more, so I probably shouldn't go through it. Whoa, yeah. Um, Song in the Movies is performed by Julie Andrews in the 1968 movie Star. Uh, about the life of actress Gertrude Lawrence. Uh, the movie is directed by Robert Wise. Frank Sinatra performs the song in a bar while being Wallace, Willis being ignored by the crowd but heard intensively by Doris Day in the 1954 film Young at Heart. Marge Champion performs the song in the movie Three for the Show. An instrumental version was played in Woody Allen's 1979 film Manhattan. Oh, during the famous Queensboro Bridge scene. The nineteen eighty three movie, and this is a classic deal of the century, opens with a promotional video for a military plane featuring someone to watch over me, sung by Nick Acosta. Then we'll talk about the movie in a second. Uh, it was also in Mr. Holland's Opus. Two thousand one it was in a Filipino movie entitled Pang. Pangako Aika Lang and Asher Book sings it in the 2000 name remake of Fame it was in Battlestar Galactica they actually had a someone watch over me um, episode it's been a while since I've seen that series great great TV series in my opinion and uh, Star Trek Voyager had an episode, Someone Watch Over Me. So there's a lot more, but let's cruise on over. Catherine McPhee, I think she's married and has kids now, but I think I, she might have been, I might have been in love with her for a brief period, even though I don't really watch American Idol. I think maybe her, I don't know, maybe it's Kelly uh, Pickler. Oh, that's another word, another great word to say, Pickler. Uh, Pickler, I like saying that too. Okay, so let's shoot over to the movie because I remember the movie. And when I was picturing it, I'm like, who was the male star? I knew it was Mimi Rogers because, again, I think I fell in love with her whenever I saw that movie. And amazingly enough, a bunch of things. Tom Berenger is the star. Again, you want to talk about someone who can be great in a movie, Tom Berenger. I mean, especially in Platoon. But he's, you know, I can't say enough about Tom Berenger. As it is, I don't want to totally go off topic here, but I earlier today, um, or literally hours ago, I saw the movie Birdman, 
with uh, Michael Michael Keaton. I mean, he is someone I'll pay to double the price of a ticket every time he's in a movie. Tom Barron is probably another person I would seen him. I mean, I'm not. But anyway, let's get to the movie. It's a 1987 romance crime thriller starring Tom Berenger and Mimi Rogers. And wait for it, directed by Ridley motherfucking Scott. Film soundtrack includes uh, the George and Ira Gershwin song, from which the film's title is taken, sung by Sting, and Vangelis's Memories of Green. Originally from Blade Runner? I don't understand that. The plot. Okay, spoiler alert. Socialite Claire Gregory, Mimi Rogers, attends a party in our show sponsored by one of her oldest friends, Wynne Hawkins, accompanied by her as her straight-laced boyfriend, Neil Steinhardt, played by John Rubenstein. In another part of town, there's another party, this one for newly appointed detective Mike Keegan, played by Tom Berenger. Wynne is accosted by a former partner, Joey Venza, who is angry because... Wynn had not come to him to borrow, borrow a movie. Wynn. I don't know who. Oh, Claire's buddy's Wynn. After a short argument, he attacks Wynn. There's a crime. Claire witnesses it. Uh, she runs. He goes at The guy, criminal goes after her. Then the police come in. New detective Keegan's first man in the case. He's married, but he falls for Claire. Along, you know, he's protects Claire. He's someone to watch over her until she can testify in court. He's determined to go to extremes to protect her. Venza comes after her. Keegan and his wife, Ellie, played by Lorraine, Mizzle, Fizzle, Bizzle, Bracco, separate over his involvement in the case. He and Claire acknowledge their love for Keegan, but cannot bring himself to simply abandon his family. The tragic, sounds like a little tragedy developing. In the end, you know, stuff happens. Reception, someone to watch over me, had positive reviews and holds a 76% rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on 25 reviews with the saying, its plot is sometimes hard to swallow, but from fine acting and director Ridley Scott's stylish visual flair, Seem to make someone to watch over me an engaging police thriller. Someone to watch over me was a disappointment at the box office, despite reviews. Bringing in $10 million at a limited run. Did better on VHS, that's all it says. But let me tell you something about, I looked at a couple of reviews, and if you're from New York, you lived in New York, or you love New York City, every single review mentioned the visuals of New York. So if you find yourself with a hankering for New York, you know, why don't you find yourself someone to watch over this movie? You know, like the movie's singing to you to watch over me. And you're watching over it, watching the movie, watching New York, watching Tom Berenger and Mimi Rogers. Two, car- two interesting people. I don't know, you know, the people that... uh I'd love to find out, catch up with both of them and track their careers because it kind of feels like they they had to face some difficulties and right turns. They didn't have this straight shot to stardom. And then, like, it's like they never peaked. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. Um, 
But yeah, it's just, I'm just thinking out loud here. So that's, that's it. Someone watch over me. I'll put a couple versions up in the uh, playlist, but it's still with me. Um, especially that, I mean, poor Amy Winehouse. Jeez. Um, that's tragedy too. So I just think, I mean, it's just, yeah. So, um, all right. All right. Next up is just what, you know, it's, it's been a while since I've just read through a list. And when Shay said, you know, I'm Shay the funny whore, which I just think is her delivery was excellent and just funny line. What am I, Shay the funny whore? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I think it's just great. Uh, I wanted to look up some um, famous prostitutes from fiction and movies and stuff. And uh, so let's just go through. That's a list. Of, I'm going to skip uh, real, the real famous prostitutes and courtesans. Courtesans? Courtesans? And this is uh, from Wikipedia. They have a list of uh, prostitutes and courtesans. And literature, Bella Cohen, Florian Zoe from Ulysses by James Joyce, Belle from Ah, Wilderness by Eugene O'Neill, Belle Watting, Gone with the Wind, Candy and Candy, a novel of love and addiction. Candy and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Elizabeth Rousset from Boule, Boule du Souf by Guy de Maupoussant. Fanny Hill and Fanny Hill. Fantine in Les Mis by Victor Hugo. I think uh, if you, my brother has some sketches of Fantine up on his, I don't know up off the top of my head, though, but it'll be in the show notes. Lady Sally, a.k.a. Callahan's Lady. Marguerite Gautier from Dumas, oh, Alexander Dumas' son. Uh, his work, La Dame, uh, something based on the real life Marie Duplay. Violetta from La Traviata by Giuseppe Verde is also inspired by uh, Dumas' uh, play, and it's uh, La Triviata means the reprobate. Juliet in uh, Marquis de Sade's Juliet, Kamala in Siddhartha, huh. Lozana in The Portrait of Lozana, Mal Flanders in The Fortune and Misfortunes of the Famous Mal Flanders by Daniel Defoe, Molly Malone, an Irish urban legend. Nana and Nana by Zola. Nancy, oh, sweet Nancy and Oliver Twist. Poor Nancy. Odette and Proust's, Proust, Proust, Un Amour de Swan. Uh, Fidre no de Une from Jacqueline Carey's Cushel novels. Pio Pan from Clive Barker's Magica, Romulus from the central character in the Romanian and a story of obsession. Miss Rosie Param, the uh, brothel owner. Oh, I've been meaning to read some of these Discworld World novels by Terry Pratchett. She's a guild of seamstresses. There's a hard word for me to pronounce. Seamstresses. Santine and Moulin Rouge by Baz Luhrmann. Uh, somebody in from Belle de Jour. Sonia Marmolodova, who from Crime and Punishment. It's like my favorite char- my favorite character name is Constantinopolovra. I just love the Olovra. 
all over. Susie Wong from the world of Susie Long. Talanta from La Talanta. Tra La La from Last Exit to Brooklyn. I had to read that for a report that I think I got a D on. Tristessa by Jack Kerouac. Tristessa Vasant Senna. Um, Yumi Komagata. Zaza. Okay, and that's so that's literature. Film and television, they don't have a real um, belle de jour. Wasn't she played by Catherine Deneuve? Catherine Deneuve. Irma La Dolce. Uh, Inara Sarah. She was in Firefly. Miss Miller from McCabe and Miss Miller. Vivian Ward from Pretty Woman. Belle in the Sleeping Car from Starlight Express. Donna and Trix. And then, I mean, they're missing Roz. And Shay, Roz, the whore that's everywhere. And I mean that in a good way, the redheaded. And then Shay, the funny whore. And I'm not saying those words in a pejorative way. I'm using their. Um, I mean, Shay says, what am I, Shay, the funny whore? And I mean, this is fiction. And I know this is a hurtful word. It is to a lot of people. But I'm not, I'm not trying to use it in a hurtful way. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I was just trying to make a list. So I'm sorry for, uh, I'm just, I'm also sorry that this Wikipedia, usually Wikipedia's got a lot more lists. I'm trying to think of any other movies. Pretty Woman I wouldn't have thought of. But uh, wasn't there like a movie? Well, it's, that's not important. Uh, what's important is uh, we're moving on. Thanks. Hello, hello. This is Tommen, uh, Sir Tommen, Lord Tommen. Uh, calling in with another tale of Sir Pounce, the great is cat in the world. The greatest cat a boy's ever been best friends with and the greatest better best friend a cat and boy have ever been friendshiped about. That's a pounce and that's Tommen and that's me and I'm the one telling you about the tales of Sir Pounce. Now tonight we're continuing Sir Pounce in the quest to wait where Sir Pounce decided because some pirate was flapping his gums about Sir something and Sir Pounce and like he said I'll get a Whisker from a cat from all eight kingdoms of Westeros, my friend, and slap you in the face. Or maybe he did, and then clawed him. Oh, no, he clawed the man in the last tale, maybe? And I'll, I grew my nails, and Mother found out because I clawed a scepter. Oh, but that's nothing. And before I tell you the tale of Sir Ponce, i got to tell you, because sometimes Salmon... He needs Sir Pounce because Sir Pounce was out for the day and Joff knocked in the room and he had that nice look on his face which makes me terribly afraid and makes me have to go to party. I said, one second, I've got to pee. And then he said, come on, Tom, and let's go play. And I said, really? And he said, no, no, really, really. I'm king now and I have, I have to be more like a king. I'm going to change how I do things. And one of them is play with my brother Tom and because I, you know, you have that cat you spend all that time with. Why don't you spend some time with your brother? And I said, really? I know. In my head, I was like, oh, no. And then the hound came and said, let's go, boy. Let's go. You go with your brother. I said, okay, okay. You, you, uh, uh, like that. And then I said, Jeff said, don't worry. Hound, hound. His bark smells like his pits or something he said in 
The hound looked to Joff and then kept walking. And then uh, he said, I said, what, 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 do you, what, what do you want, my, my, my sir, my sir, my lord, my liege? And he said, oh, I'm your brother. Don't, don't. And he said, uh, what you, what you do? Uh, come on, we're going to play some soccer. And I said, oh, well, what's that? What's that? And he said, oh, they played across the narrow sea. It's played with a ball. And, uh, you know, it was a, I said, oh, that kicking game. I do like that kicking game of, oh, Chaff, you want to play a kick, kicking game with me with a ball? And he said, I do. And I said, that sounds so much fun. And then he, 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 he said, okay, okay, close your eyes. I'm going to kick. And it was a, it was a head. It was a head. I said, if we get to the point, I was going to build it up, but it's, it was terrible. And I cried. And then he said, uh, he said, uh, he said, oh, I'm sorry. Here, I have this treat. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, I, I love, well, anyway, it was a tongue. Oh, Joff's a terrible king. Don't, don't ever let him find out I told you that. He's, he's so mean. And Sir said, well, let me tell you the rest of the tale of eight. I can get your mind off it, Tommen. He said, Tommen, one time I found myself in the Iron Islands. And I said, the Iron Islands? That sounds like a terrible place. Sir said, it is a terrible place. And uh, what, uh, what, what we need to do, Talman, uh, when we're in a terrible place, is give it our best. Can you do that, Talman, sometimes? And I said, I don't know, Sir I'm just a, a repulsive creature, as Mother says sometimes. And, oh, oh calm down, calm, calm down. Let me tell you about this tale of the Iron Islands, okay? The Iron Islands. Are a terrible place, but just because it's a terrible place does not mean it does not have beautiful things, Tommen. Now I went to the Siren Isles, and I bounced around the Iron Isles from island to island, sneaking on the largest ship I could find, and drinking rum until I woke at port, and then walking around and clearing my head, and saying never again will I go on the sea, though I didn't, and somehow I would get a hairball, and I would have to toss it up, Tommen. But uh, anyway, I arrived at this big island. I'm not sure what it was called, but it was repulsive. Repulsive, Tommen. You know, those rocks that are slick and cold, and the air is both wet and freezing, and it goes into your bones and makes them ache. And that is also a metaphor. It gives you a foreboding that soon more than just your bones will ache on this isle. And someone spotted me, some toothless iron islander, and he said, Eh, we ate cats on this island. Be gone with you, go back on your ship. And you can thank me for telling you to get out of here before fate worse than, uh, you know, boat riding for cats awaits you. And I said, uh, thank you, kind sir. And uh, I said, uh, what, do you, what do they feed the toothless on the Zion Island? He said, uh, book soup. And I said, oh, book soup, what is that? He said, the book soup's what the rich toothless eat. I eat nothing but what I can scrounge, which is mostly dirt and the beetles of the earth. And, uh, now, Tom, don't eat any beetles, okay? And that's what his serpent said to me. And I said, well, Sapanza's story is not, uh, it's making me distracted and thinking about the what Joff made me kick. 
and the eyes looking at me. Well, this, uh, Sir Tommen, Tommen, easy. This, this man's eyes were quite, quite sad, and suddenly I got a sense that this Iron Island, as hard as it is in name, and its people seemed hard, and that looks cold, and the air cold. I said to myself, Sir Pounce, you still need to get a, you know, whisker here, and, uh, Hopefully you can find one cat that's, I'm not, I don't really mind the teeth, but you know, uh, you know, that doesn't have a bone showing, uh, you know, and has at least a, you know, a more, you know, full head of hair, uh, uh, you know, and whiskers, of course, and maybe isn't dirty and ratty, because that's not my thing, Tom. And, and so I headed to the biggest castle, and as soon as I got close to the castle, I knew that that was not the place for me. And so I went by, and I smelled some wood burning just past the castle over the hill. And it was burning, and it was like an older apple wood, and it was, it was a scent that warmed my heart, Tom. And, and then I smelled barbecued meat, and I went over, and there was this woman dressed in a, a red bathrobe, and she was, it was, it was. Uh, we won't talk about that, Tom. And but I went beyond there. And down through a gully, past the fires, and I found, tucked away in the hills, a large house made of uh, earth, rammed earth, Tommen, not stone. And I said to myself, now, there's a place that has a chance to be warm on the inside and, and not cold, for the rammed earth will both retain, re, re, keep, retain the heat but also radiate the heat as it gets warm or something, Tom, and, and add a nice grassy roof. And then I got up on the roof and I rolled around and it rubbed my face and I said, this is what makes the, oh, Tom, and my itchy back, oh, this, this peat, they called it a peat roof, and they were burning peat inside and it was lovely. And I went in and an old lady was making soup. And I said to her, afternoon, milady. She was an old woman. She said to me, hello. Yeah, I've never seen a cat so fine, except for the cat I had once, who was taken away by that woman in the red bathrobe. And I said, well, what are you cooking up there, book soup? She said, book soup's for fools. All it is is uh, it's a long story. It's glue soup is what they should call it. Fool soup. No, this is turnips and parsnips and rutabagas mixed with the bones of some birds that I know how cats hate, and I'm making it to bring back my lovely cat, Petalina. And Sir Pound said, well, what's happened to this cat? And she said, you fell under the spell of the woman in the red bathrobe, and I miss her so, but she's got this new thing about barbecuing. Well, I don't like talking about it. It's not proper. And Sir Pound said, I'll get your cat back. I'll be back. And Sir Pound pounced off like a rocket, up the hill, and back to where the barbecue was going on. And the woman in the red bathrobe was there, and uh, Sir Pounce said her bathrobe was open. And he said, Tom, I don't think about that too much, though. For Sir Pounce raced along and raced back and forth, looking for the cat. And then she saw her on a pile of twigs, watching the fire, hypnotized by the fire. And the red woman was dancing and, and making chants that were hypnotic and the cat was hypnotized and so Sir Pounce went up to her and bit her tail so hard that the cat not the woman 
vet and never bite anything, Tom, and oh, God, what they'll do to you if you stop biting your sister or the scepters. Clawing's one thing. But Sapounce bit a tail and ran off in this cat's meow. And she ran after Sapounce with a fire in her eyes. Sapounce ran right back to the house, jumped on the peat roof, and the cat dived on Sapounce, and he dived out of the way, and she rolled. And something about the peat on a spine and on that. Uh, Sapounce jumped on her and rubbed her lower back into the peat, and it brought her back to life. And then Sapounce said, and then I... Well, we rolled in the peat for a while, Tom, and we were covered in peat. And then we had ourselves a bowl of whatever that cat pigeon uh, turnip bag of soup was, and it was good. And then we went back up on the peat, and, the red, and then the red woman came and took the cat away. But I had plucked her whisker, and the old one cried. But I, and then I rolled around the roof a few more times and uh, got some of the... the yeah, never mind, Tom, and... And then uh, I was off to leave the Iron Island Islands and never to return. But you see, Tommen, there's a peat roof everywhere if you look hard enough. But, but what about the, uh, the little woman girl cat, Sir Pounce? Oh, well, uh, you know, she liked looking at fire. So that's it. That's the story. Sir Pounce, I don't understand. Joth made me kick around ahead today. Yes, you'll be fine, Tommen. Now, Tommen, just think about your bed and roll around in your bed like it was a peat roof. Thick grass. Go ahead, Tommen, do it. Roll in that bed, Tommen. Now, you can itch your back, most of it, while you're a little pudgy, but uh, anyway, Tommen, just remember you have a bed, okay? It's a peat roof. And it's the greatest thing in the world. And that's it. And that was another whisker I plucked. So that was Sir Pounce's tale. And now I'm in bed, pretending it's peat moss or whatever he said. And I tried rolling in the grass, and that peat moss must be different. So that's what I asked for, for the, uh, the, the Joff's name day, whenever it comes. Or oh, my name day is a peat mat, a mat of peat. And Mother looked at me, and she scoffed. Oh, what a boy you are. Oh. So, and then that that man with the chains, the magister or whatever, said, oh, well, the boys are, but it will be, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be, maybe you'll be a maester here, but I guess the peat moss. So that's the tale of Sir Pounce and the Iron Islands in the Roof of Peat. The end. Thank you, folks. Lord Sir Tommen. Hoping his bed is a bit of peat moss, and not of Joff-related dreams of terror. Okay, I know it'll be, because I have Sir Pounce here, under my armpit, keeping me warm, and keeping you warm. Because if Sir Pounce is my best friend, and you are my friends, I hope, I hope you're my friends. I hope you, like, you don't see me like mother, and father dead, and Joff, even the hound looks at me with a disgust. Oh, but Sir Pounce does not. So that is it. Thank you. A crone, sweet crone, sweet, sweet crone. Barky, Jester, Miller, Smith. It's me clocking in. Um, latest update on this war, religious war. Things are dying down. Uh, I mean, by dying down, I mean... Uh, 
it uh, ended up worked itself out because uh, so we had the severed souls, and I was trying to get everything doing good, and um, you know I got all the people. You know, I said, let's take care of these old people. What do you say? You know, this if you don't like your mother, take care of this guy's mother, and uh, uh. well, it, 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 I started enjoying it, and then people call, started calling me the shepherd, like I was shepherding these, because all the old people started dressing in white, like sheep, and, uh, you know, they're mostly white hair and stuff like that, and, you know, Smith, we we used some weapons, there was, you know, with the rich, uh, uh, we had a little a couple battles with the um, Septon's armies, but... Uh, Mostly they realized they were, they were like, wait a second, some real smart guy came in <clears throat> and he said, oh, well, let's talk peace, let's talk peace. And he called me in and after he met me about five minutes later, he started laughing. He said, no, no, go ahead, go, go, yeah, this will be fine. Yeah, I don't know. He said, let me meet this great shepherd. And then he started laughing and then it went from great shepherd, like I, I was a little worried, gods, I was going to become a god because, you know, they were calling me the great shepherd and acting like I returned and I was calling me the stuff of Dothraki legends or something like that. Uh, but, you know, uh, unfortunately, Crone, people got really sick of having these older people they weren't related to in their houses. And then when I was telling them how much the taxes were going to be to keep the, you know, um, Houses running, they said, you know, and then um, everyone had heard about, they figured out that I wasn't a brothel inspector, so they heard about my activity in the brothels, so that was a big joke. And then they were calling, started calling me the lesser shepherd, and because, and then they said that I, that I lie with my sheep, uh, and I think they meant like sleeping with the old people, because a lot of them, is like transference, I think is what they call it, they were confused because I was helping them. Maybe I made a, I don't know, God. So so the good news is no more religious war um, at all. And Smith, I kind of think we glorified your name because we took up arms. We took arms. There was some clanging of arms. They, you know, they armed people against us. So I think we did a pretty good job, uh, you know, fighting for you guys. So, I mean, it's not like a big update this week. There's not, nothing else uh is, you know, I'm the lesser shepherd, and people get a kick out of that, I guess, calling me that, and then um, then they threw us all out of town. And uh, so we're back at Shut-In City. But to be honest, I'm out of here, God's crone, because uh, a lot of people, um, they're, they're sick of me too. They, they, they kicked me out, okay? They said uh, they had a couple people that were their leader types, and they set out some glory hound, and that they asked me to leave, and um, you know that they could do a better job on their own. And then they said, you know, why didn't you build any? Perm-? You know, then they started building rammed earth housing that they said I knew about like five episodes ago because I did a report on it. And I said, how'd you find out about the podcast? They said we found it in a tree, and I said, oh yeah, I forgot about that that whole thing. Um, Really good news is George R. R. Martin's not going to find out about any of this and get mad at me 
because it's like back, like the severed soul movement is gone. Uh, I'm kicked out, so I'm just like on this, you know, believe it or not, I'm on that rock right now. I'm like huddled up against it trying to keep myself warm that that uh, old woman was at the beginning of this whole uh, um, arc of story that I've been telling you guys, uh, that, you know, when I kicked it off helping that old lady. Trying to glorify, so I kind of glorified some names, uh, Barky. We lived in a tree, cops or whatever, a collection of trees. And Smith, we, you know, used some steel. Miller, you already got yours. Barky, you kind of got yours already. Crone, it was your people. And uh, Jester, obviously, you probably had a laugh at the whole thing. Jester, I got a new god here on earth for you. His name's Damon. He's going to be watching out, so that's that. Uh, he volunteered to uh, step up for you, um, and he, he sent me a picture of him dressed as a clown. So, Barky, any of those, uh, those DVDs are really late, so can you get those back to me? So, guys, hopefully I'll survive the night, huddle against this rock. I'm, I don't think I'm being overly dramatic or anything, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to recover from this. It's a little, it's got me a little down. Because uh, from you know I was the great shepherd for about six hours there, and um, even the, the young women were looking at me like a little bit, and uh, now they're saying you know I'm the lesser shepherd who lays with the sheep. So even be associated with a death rack is cool. I mean, so that's it, gods. Thank you for this learning opportunity. I learned a lot. Um, I learned. Uh, Aldermen suck. I learned that, Crone, you got it difficult. You're not, it's not easy being you. And, uh, but I think your people, maybe they'll take care of themselves. Maybe they'll go back in and work something out. But you're better off without me. Or maybe I I started their self, um, you know, self-sustaining movement. I'm not sure. I'm not going to take any credit for it. And um, I learned uh, using fake witches to steal stuff works uh, but only in situations where it's called for and uh, I'm going to learn pretending a brothel inspector uh, uh, it can be fun until people humiliate you and uh, you know I just learned that you know it's me and you gods I'm here you know you're here to teach me I'm here to learn and praise your names and uh you know, go on adventures, I guess. This was an adventure I wouldn't have had if I didn't spot that woman. You know, who? what an opportunity to be pretend I have a coven of witches at my side and um, deal with STDs and older adults and, you know, uh, uh, get aldermen thrown out of town. So that's it, guys. I'm hoping another adventure comes up soon. I know it will. Because I got to get out of this town, so I got to walk and try to find something else to do. So uh, I'll be in touch. I'm, my first priority is bringing, helping, uh, well, be able to get some bread and some ale and some. Well, I guess I yeah, no more ale, some bread and some warm stuff, and then uh, maybe maybe make out with um, uh, this one woman. She, she had no teeth, but she made out like uh, she did. So that's the one that everybody saw me making out with. Because uh, she said, you ever kiss a woman? She was quite fetching. 
And she said, you ever kiss a woman without any teeth? I said, no. And she said, would you like to? I said, no. And she said, well, do it. And then I said, afterwards, I said, well, I was wrong. I should have, you know. Um, so that's it, God. So I'll be in, I'll be up, I'll be back soon. And may the road rise to meet us all and our feet that touch our back with the wind or whatever they say, God. All right. Uh, thank you again. Sweet crone, sweet, 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 sweet crone. Miller Barkey, Jester, uh, Smith, and, uh, uh, um, yeah. And, I mean, Maiden, I'm, I'm hovel against this rock right now. Body heat would be uh, ideal. Uh, I'm just saying. All right, guys, I'll, I'll be in touch. Thank you. Good night. Good night, good night, good night.